The title of this morning's message is called Atmosphere of Love. Today I want to continue to talk to you about our internal atmosphere. Science has discovered that human beings operate from either an internal atmosphere of love or an internal atmosphere of fear, and that each atmosphere creates its own distinguishable results. <laughs> I have a picture of a tree I want you to see. It's a tree that I and my husband see on the back road on the way to my daughter's house. The tree has a normal, healthy trunk, but on top, only half of the branches are healthy and full of life. The other half of the branches are completely naked. <laughs> they have no leaves and no signs of life at all. I think this is a really good example of the results of love-based thinking versus fear-based thinking in the life of a believer. Parts of our brain have healthy, full branches, full of love and life. But we can also have some branches <laughs> that are full of fear and death. Love-based thinking always produces life, and fear-based thinking always produces damage and death. Fear-based thinking actually causes physical damage to our brains, our bodies, and our immune systems. Oddly enough, this sounds a lot like Romans 8.6, <laughs> which says, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Carnally minded is based in fear. It's based on what we can see, hear, feel, touch. <laughs> it's not based on the truth of what Jesus has already done. And of course, love-based minded always brings forth. I love that. Always brings forth life and peace. The scripture tells us that there is a direct correlation between how we think and what is produced in our life. So if there's stuff in our life that we're not so fond of, if we have naked branches, <laughs> it might be an indication that we need to change our thinking from carnal-based or fear-based to spiritual, which is love-based. This is exactly what many scientists who have discovered that people do remarkably better within an interior atmosphere of love have told people to do. Simply choose to think thoughts based in love, thereby changing the interior atmosphere, which has been proven to help people to handle stress more effectively, and it also helps them have a better outlook. But these people, because they're not believers, <laughs> are told to meditate on the fact that they are lovable and that they should love themselves. The love they are told to meditate on is self-love. Many are told that they themselves are in fact love, and to love themselves is the same as loving the Creator, who is in fact love. Blech! <laughs> blech, blech, blech. <laughs> this is so close to what we find in Scripture, yet it's a million miles away. Yes, God, the Creator, He is love, but the universe is not God. God created the universe. We are not God. The universe is not God. There is one God, and He's the one true and living God, and that's the God. That's the love we need to meditate on. When scientists leave out the one true and living God out of their scientific equations, 
they end up falling into the same lies that Satan has used forever. They end up worshiping the creation instead of the true creator. And then finally, they convince themselves that they are in and of themselves their own God and their own creator. More bliss. <laughs> we see this truth in Romans chapter 1, verses 19 through 21, which says this. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. Who is the them? Everybody. <laughs> All of those atheists who say there is not, God says, uh-uh, I've shown it to you. You are accountable. <laughs> Verse 20. For the invisible things of him, God, from the creation of the world are clearly seen. And that's what science is doing. They're going, wow, this place is amazing. Wow, we're amazing. And then somehow they manage to pull God right out of it <laughs> and say, yes, we are amazing. No. <laughs> but he says the invisible things from creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, the universe, even his eternal power and Godhead. So they are without excuse because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Good science is a good thing. It always points us to the majesty of God as our creator and the creator of the universe. And thankfully, there are, there are good scientists who are also believers. Thank you, Jesus. But when science takes the facts and extracts the obvious truth that there really is God, they end up in darkness, completely deceived, thinking that they are their own creators and that they can create whatever they need, including the love their hearts desire. And because they have discovered our divine design and they figured out how we work, and that we really are affected by how we think, scripture, <laughs> science can actually help people feel better about themselves and have a more positive outlook, you know, handle the stress. The power of our thinking is extraordinary. That's uh, in itself amazing. That's what they have discovered. They have discovered that whoever designed us did an amazing job. <laughs> because we are designed to work <laughs> for good. <laughs> we are designed in a particular way. And that particular way is to live in an internal atmosphere of love. We can see the power. Put Jesus aside just for a second and just say, look at this design. Look how extraordinary this is. This is what science does. Even though God is revealing all of this truth to them, they say, well, we want to be inclusive. We don't want anyone to be offended. We're not going to talk about Jesus or Buddha or anybody else. Let's just talk about how wonderful we are created. They take out the creator and think that they have real light. We see this also in Genesis 11. After the flood, some of the descendants of Noah decided they could build a tower all the way to heaven. We don't need God. We'll just get there all by ourselves. <laughs> and thereby lifting themselves up as God. 
So God comes down and sees what's going on. He says this in verse 6 of chapter 11. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language. And this they begin to do. And now nothing will be restrained from them, which they have imagined to do. This phrase, will be restrained from them, actually means nothing will be inaccessible. That's just our normal state of being created. That doesn't include the fact that Jesus Christ lives in us. We have that same wonderful design that by our thinking and our imagining, nothing will be restrained from us. Nothing will be inaccessible to them because of how God created them. They were designed to be single-minded and to bring forth what they thought about. Isn't that Romans 8, 6? <laughs> that what we think about is what we bring forth. What we imagine in our hearts has the power to become true in our life. That's the power of our design. We truly are fearfully and wonderfully made. We are full of potential just in our design. And then we can add Jesus on top of that, and nothing is impossible to them who believe. And where does believing come from? From thinking. <laughs> from how we think. Our constant thinking and reinforcing our thinking becomes deep-seated belief. Nothing is impossible to those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And because some scientists have discovered the power of our design, they think that they can eliminate their need for God by setting themselves up as their own God. I will just love me and worship me. <laughs> Doesn't work. <laughs> so because that is what they do, they say we are so majestic and wonderful, and we are. <laughs> they say we must be the creators, and we must be the God. And so if we need something, we can provide it. And since they have discovered the greatest need of a human being is to be loved. Therefore, if I need to be loved, I will love myself. <laughs> I knew better than that when I was a teenager. <laughs> when I was a teenager, I think it was my first boyfriend. Of course, he broke up with me, and of course, I was crushed. <laughs> but even in the midst of my heartache, I wondered, why isn't my parents' love for me enough? If love is love, then why isn't my parents' love enough for me to be comforted in my heartache? I didn't understand it back then, but I realized human beings are designed to enjoy different kinds of love. The love of parents, the love of a sweetheart, the love of a child, the love of siblings, or hatred thereof. <laughs> the love of friends, <laughs> and maybe even the love of a pet. <laughs> I didn't understand why one type of love could not fulfill the desire for other types of love. I just simply knew that it didn't. And the same is true for the love of God. Self-love can never fulfill the desire to be unconditionally loved and accepted by someone who knows everything about you, the real you, and still loves you. This truth reminded me of a famous saying. I looked it up online and I found this little article, and it contains both a quote 
and a comment. It starts with this. Blaise Pascal was a mathematician and a philosopher from the 1600s. He is often quoted as saying, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every person which cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by God the Creator. And the comment was this, however, somewhere along the way, it seems that the institution of religion has largely failed the individual's need. Now, I believe both the quote and the comment are correct. <laughs> we were created to know by experience, by relationship, our Creator, our Father, our God. No created thing can meet the need of our heart to be unconditionally loved and accepted and transformed. <laughs> and yes, religion has failed miserably because religion isn't God. And keeping rules and regulations in an effort to make ourselves acceptable and blessable is not the same as knowing, believing, and receiving the love of God. In 1 John 4, 16, it says this, And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. This is our design, to live in an atmosphere of being loved. When I was thinking about this, I was remembering about a month ago or so, a young associate pastor committed suicide. He was only 30 years old and he had a wife and two kids. This is a social media post I want you to see. At 4 p.m. on September 9th, 2019, he posted this to social media. Loving Jesus doesn't always cure suicidal thoughts. Loving Jesus doesn't always cure depression. Loving Jesus doesn't always cure PTSD, post-traumatic stress syndrome. Loving Jesus doesn't always cure anxiety. But that doesn't mean Jesus doesn't offer us companionship and comfort. He always does that. Later that same night, he shot and killed himself. Does anything about that strike you as odd? When I read this, I thought, oh my God, how awful. He's got it all backwards. Our love for Jesus isn't what changes and heals and supports and transforms. It's God's love for us that does all of that. It is being loved and receiving the love of God that changes everything. It's the self-effort and self-focus of religion that keeps our eyes off of the truth of who Christ is in us and what he's already done for us. I also thought, oh, if he only understood grace, if he only understood his father's absolutely free, loving kindness and acceptance of him, if he only understood the true gospel that you cannot get saved by yourself and you cannot keep yourself. It is all of grace. It is all what he has done. This young man suffered with suicidal thoughts and deep depression for quite a long time. And I am not in any way trying to diminish the painfulness of depression. I too in the past have suffered with depression, but self-love could not have saved this young man. 
In fact, it didn't. His pain even overruled his self-preservation, which is a part of self-love. We don't go around killing ourselves because we love ourselves. And that's the truth. We already love ourselves. That's why Jesus says, love your neighbor. How? As you love yourself. Treat others the way you want to be treated. And then after the cross, he said, oh, by the way, that's not good enough. Love others as I have loved you. Let others see the love, the absolutely free loving kindness of a God who doesn't care what you've done or how far you think you've fallen or how much of an an idiot you think you are. He loves you and he wants you. His pain overruled his self-preservation, which is actually part of self-love. And actually, it's self-love that enables people to take their own lives. Because self-love says the only thing that really matters is how I feel. The most important thing in my life is my pain. And I must solve it because I love myself. It is the epitome of selfishness. But when we think that our God is a God we have to please, that he's only going to do something for us if we do something first, that he will love us if we love him first, that my love, my effort, my self-effort can heal me and save me and change me, I am very deceived. Now, I realize I didn't know this young man, and I'm sure there are obviously lots of things I'm unaware of. I know, in fact, though, that often the medications prescribed for depression actually push young people into committing the act of suicide. And that may have simply been the truth in his situation. But if he knew the love of his father, he wouldn't have left himself in his own hands. If he knew he was on the edge and he knew how much his father loved him and how much life and love was ahead, he would have made a better decision. I only picked him because he's a real person and a believer. And from his post, it appears he was trusting in his own love for Jesus instead of Jesus' love for him. Believe it or not, many Christians are adopting this self-love theory. They are buying into the lie that my true problem is that I don't love myself enough because if I loved myself enough, I would X, Y, or Z. It's even showing up on all kinds of Christian websites, and it's a terrible, destructive lie. We are not our own saviors, and we cannot meet the need of our own heart to be loved. We were designed for a God kind of love. Often, especially in times of trouble, many people come to the end of themselves and realize that we by ourselves are not enough. (laughs) We can't fix ourselves and we can't heal ourselves. We need something and someone bigger than ourselves. We need God and his unmerited love and acceptance because it's part of our design. We are not complete apart from Christ and his love. Now earlier I mentioned that all of our thoughts are based either in fear or love. And that that's God's design. His design dictates that if we want the best in our life, that we need to live in an atmosphere of love. We need to be spiritually minded. And being spiritually minded produces life and peace. But what happens 
when our thoughts of God don't produce life and peace, but fear, self-loathing, disappointment, anger, and doubt. For many Christians, their misunderstandings of God prevent them from being able to live their life in an atmosphere of being loved and accepted. Instead, they live in fear, thinking and believing that God is mad at them for their failures and sins, that God is allowing bad things to happen to them to punish them, either for something they did or didn't do, and that they must be very careful how they walk the walk because the Holy Spirit could get offended and leave them. Now, I know you don't believe those things, (laughs) but this is a pretty close description of my Christian life prior to really understanding the gospel of grace, which is the good news of God's absolutely free loving kindness and his absolutely free gift of right standing through faith alone in what Christ alone has already done. Back then, I really did not understand how completely God had dealt with sin in the new covenant. I always thought in terms of the old covenant forgiveness, which was a lamb by lamb, sin by sin, momentary right standing. The Hebrews were only right with God as long as they either did what was right or they brought a sacrifice to cover the sin they had committed. The right standing with God was all external and it was the only kind of right standing that was available. (laughs) That was the only kind of opportunity they had. That was their covenant. This coming Tuesday is the Jewish holiday of Yom Kippur. It's also known as the Day of Atonement. It is considered the holiest day of the year by the Jewish people. Jews traditionally observe this holy day with a 25-hour period of fasting and intensive prayer, often spending most of the day in the synagogue. They go to church five times, (laughs) five times in one day. (laughs) In their prayers, they are seeking the forgiveness of sins, the exemption from judgment, which would be that they would die sometime during the coming year. Often, well-meaning and devout Christians try to follow their example of self-punishing behavior. They repeat prayers and confess sins, and they beat, literally, beat their chest. They repeat their confessions over and over. Five times, five opportunities, you've got to go and get yourself right with God. They participate in sacrificial behaviors, such as fasting, giving to charity, and participating in long hours as a means of obtaining forgiveness, averting judgment, and obtaining blessing. What some Christians don't understand is that all of these things are a slap in the face to Jesus if we are trying to use these behaviors as a means of obtaining forgiveness or blessing from God. Because we are basically saying that what Jesus did for us and as us was not enough to pay the judgment for our sins or to warrant God's blessing. Doing good things because we love Jesus is good. Go ahead, give to charity. Go ahead, spend lots of time with God in prayer, but do it because that's the desire of your heart, not because you're trying to get God to do something. The truth is God has already done something about everything and everyone. It's called the cross. Through the cross of Jesus Christ, the judgment for all sin, for all people, for all time, was paid in full.
in John chapter 12, Jesus says this. Now, when is this now? This now is not here now. This now was back then. Okay? Jesus is saying, now is the judgment of this world? What? (laughs) Isn't that coming a lot later? That's not what Jesus said. Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all. And in most versions, it says men, and it's in italics because it's not there. (laughs) Okay? If I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all unto me. This he said, signifying what death he would die. As you may already know, the word men is not in the Greek. Translators added it in an effort to try to help us with interpreting this scripture. The subject, though, is not drawing all men. The subject is Jesus being lifted up on the cross. Jesus is lifted up all over this world, and yet that does not mean all will come to him. The context is judgment. Jesus is the judgment of the world is now. Judgment of the whole world. What was the judgment for? Sin. What sin? All sin. The sin of the entire world. John the Baptist was right when he said in John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the whole world. The whole world. (laughs) This is an amazing statement because the only way in which sin was ever dealt with was by the death of a substitute, which only covered their sins, and it was never for anybody but a Jew. Old Covenant, only for Jews, (laughs) not for Gentiles. All sin has already found its judgment, its punishment, on the cross. There's only one way to deal with sin, and that's to take it into death. There's a difference between the punishment or penalty of sin and the consequences of sin in a believer's life. The law of sowing or reaping always applies. <laughs> if we sow consistently to the flesh, we will reap corruption and ruin. But if we consistently sow to the spirit, we will reap a harvest of God's kind and quality of life perpetually. I love that part. So we needn't be surprised if we get fired for telling our boss off. <laughs> But that isn't God's judgment for that particular sin. The judgment or penalty for sin is always death. And Jesus took that for us once and only once for all sin, for all time. In Hebrews chapter 9, starting with verses 24, it says this. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us, nor yet that he should offer himself often, as the high priest entered into the holy place every year with the blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now, once, in the end of the world, yes, it says that, (laughs) but now, once in the end of the world, hath he appeared to put away sin, by the sacrifice of himself. To put away sin means to nullify its power to condemn. It's canceled. 
All of our sins have been canceled, made void, without any power to condemn us. That's what Jesus did. And he tells us right here, this does not work like the old covenant. Old covenant, you sin, you get a lamb. You sin, you get a lamb. You sin, you get a lamb. But the new covenant, there's one lamb for all sin. Every sin ever committed in the history of in the entirety of time. One sin forever. He has taken the power of sin away from us as far as its ability to condemn us. He's also taken, once we're born again, taken the way the power of sin, period. We have to submit to it. We have dominion over it. <laughs> And this is why Romans 8, 1 says, There is therefore now, <laughs> as of right now and going forward, <laughs> now always now, no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. To condemn is to pronounce as guilty and to sentence to punishment. There is no declaration of guilt. God has declared us innocent justified he sees us just as if i'd never sinned because of the blood of the lord jesus christ that is how powerful the blood of jesus is it actually erases the entire record of our sin and since we are declared innocent there is no punishment from god for our sins now your spouse might punish you <laughs> your boss might punish you the traffic cop might punish you but none of that is punishment from God. That's the law of sowing and reaping. In Matthew chapter 12, starting with verse 31, it says this, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. Jesus said that. Do you know how astounding that would have been to them? What? Every sin? People, all of them, it didn't exist prior to the cross. Now, what's really interesting is most people do not even hear the weight of this statement because of the one that follows it, <laughs> which is this. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age, what age? The age of the Old Covenant, or in the age to come. What age? Messianic age. In other words, not under the old covenant and not under the new. <laughs> now this is often called the unpardonable sin. And way too many churches use it to scare the bejeebies out of people <laughs> because they did it to me. <laughs> You're gonna grieve the Holy Spirit away. Oh my gosh. You ever hear that one? You can't grieve the Holy Spirit away. You can grieve the Holy Spirit. But what does grieve mean? To make sad. <laughs> is God happy when we're sinning? No. <laughs> is God happy when our thinking is messing up our life? No. Can that make him sad for us? Yes, because he knows what we're missing. <laughs> he knows what God has for us. Jesus says this within a conversation with the Pharisees. And that's really the key to understanding what he's actually talking about here. Because this is all within a long passage of scripture. And after he cast a demon out of a man who was both blind and mute, the crowds go wild. The crowds are praising God. And the Pharisees then, who are extremely jealous, in front of the crowds, accused Jesus of doing this by the power of Satan. 
all the while knowing that Jesus could only do those things by the power of the Holy Spirit. No prophet ever opened the eyes of a blind man. Only God. They willingly, knowingly, because of their jealousy, tried to accuse what was done as being done by Satan and not by God and the Holy Spirit. They knew God was with him. So these Pharisees, even with eyes wide open, rejected both Jesus and the Holy Spirit. This rejection and denouncement of the Holy Spirit is the blasphemy that is unpardonable. But it's only unpardonable because if somebody knowingly refuses the only door of salvation, <laughs> then there is no other way to get in. <laughs> if I say, no, I won't come in this way, there is no other way. It isn't that the sin itself is unpardonable, it's just that the sin itself keeps you from what is available. It's either Jesus and the Holy Spirit or nothing. There is no other way. You can't accidentally commit this sin. <laughs> but counsel with many a believer who were at an altar going, I think I've grieved the Holy Spirit. I think he left me. No, he didn't. You're feeling condemned. You're not letting the love of God embrace the truth of who God has created you to be. What's wonderful about this is that we get a better understanding from the Apostle Paul. Even Paul said that he had blasphemed God in his ignorance. The unpardonable sin that the Pharisees were committing was unbelief. A complete rejection of Jesus and the Holy Spirit without repentance. Without repentance. I love what Paul says about this beginning in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord Jesus was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am chief. Howbeit, for this cause I obtain mercy, that in me first <laughs> Jesus Christ might show forth all long suffering for a pattern to them who should hereafter believe on him and to everlasting life. I love this. Paul is saying, you know what? <laughs> I did the unpardonable and I still got pardoned because I had a change of mind. I did all this because I didn't believe. The light of God had not been shown to me. I didn't see it. But now, because of his amazing grace, because he loves me, he found a way to pardon the unpardonable. All I had to do was believe. And he says this, the reason God chose me is because I was so bad. God looked for the worst of the worst. He persecuted the church. He killed the disciples. He was in on all the bad stuff. And he says, that's the proof. That's the proof that there's no way you are too far away to be saved. There is nothing that you can do or will ever do that will separate you from the love of God. God has provided that every sin and blasphemy is now forgivable. So Paul is saying no one is out of God's reach because of his grace. 
His grace is exceedingly abundant and can save to the uttermost those who have been in the guttermost. <laughs> he can save anybody. Also, he is saying it doesn't matter what you did in your past. God's grace, mercy, and long-suffering are greater than all your sin. What I wanted you to see is that people don't even see the enormity of the first part of Jesus' statement. Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven. They don't see it because of the fear of the second part of that statement. You see, if we live in fear of judgment or fear that the Holy Spirit will leave us, or in fear that we will accidentally, or maybe even on purpose we're in a really bad mood, <laughs> do or say something that could undo our salvation, we will not feel safe. We will not have peace. And in order for us to experience the shalom, peace of God, shalom means to be safe, <laughs> we have to know and believe in the agape love that God has for us. If we do not feel safe, we will not feel loved. And if we think that God is forced to inflict punishment on us when we sin, we will live in a constant interior atmosphere of fear. And that's exactly the opposite of what God wants for us. He wants his love for us, not our love for him. He wants his love for us to cast out all fear of punishment. 1 John 4, verse 18. There is no, none, zero, nada. There is no fear in agape love. But perfect or complete love casts out all of that fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected, completed in love. We love because he first loved us. If we fear the punishment of God, then God's love has not yet had its complete and total work done in our heart. Our hearts still need to be fully persuaded of our Father's love and care for us. Now, some may ask, oh, what about that fear of the Lord thing? <laughs> Aren't we supposed to fear the Lord? <laughs> to fear the Lord in the new covenant is to worship him. Jesus quoted Deuteronomy, and he said, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God only and serve him. Jesus changed the word from fear to worship. To fear the Lord now is to give him the honor and reverence due his name. This sort of fear has nothing to do with pain and punishment, but is simply a proper response to a God who is holy, righteous, Faithful, good, loving, kind, patient, long-suffering, and completely in love with us. We are truly his delight and the apple of his eye. It's only when we meditate on the truth of his complete love for us do we really begin to feel the truth of his love for us. And then we can trust the truth of his love for us. Our love for God is simply our response to his love. We love him and others because he first loved us, 1 John 4.10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us 
and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. I absolutely love the word propitiation. You see, the heart of every human being is designed by God to be put at peace only by the love of their Heavenly Father, the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Our hearts need to know that Jesus is the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice, the sin offering that has already satisfied God's wrath against sin. God's wrath is not for man. God's wrath is for sin. And God is satisfied that our sins have been fully punished and put away, made void, powerless to condemn us. Through Jesus, we have been given the gift of eternal right standing. If you have right standing with God, you can have anything. The Jews know that. That's what they're working so hard to obtain. Right standing with God for at least a year. And you know what? When they finish their services on Wednesday, none of them will be sure that God has forgiven them. Their hearts won't be at peace. The best they can do is say, I did my best, God. Have mercy on me. Please don't kill me during the coming year. That's what they're believing for. That's momentary right standing. We have an eternal right standing with God. Jesus purchased our eternal redemption for us. And because of that, we do not have to fear that our Father will condemn us or send us some sort of punishment when we fall into sin. Instead, we have the confidence in our Father's love for us. When we fall, he doesn't punish us, spank us, put us in our room. He picks us up, he brushes us off, he kisses our boo-boos, and he restores and repairs whatever was hurt and whatever was broken. And he will happily help us to stay in an atmosphere of being loved by him. That's his great desire for us, that we should know and believe in the love that God has for us. Amen. Father, we thank you for the truth of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, that his blood and his body have provided for us a brand new covenant, a covenant of eternal right standing as a gift. We don't have to beg. We don't have to plead. We don't have to try to get you to move on our behalf. You have already moved. You have already provided for us everything we need through the Lord Jesus Christ and the new covenant. You invite us to know you, to spend time with you, because we want to. <laughs> we thank you, Father God, that you love when we spend time with you. You love to remind us that your love is active and working on our behalf. Not because we've did everything right. Not because of what we're going to do or promise you to do. But because of your great love. For you so loved me. You so loved my neighbor. You so loved every human being that you sent the Lord Jesus Christ to die in our stead so that we could have an eternal redemption. And we thank you for it. In the name of Jesus, amen.